1955, John F. Kennedy won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Profiles in Courage. It was a short book of biographical cameos hiding United States senators who displayed courage and conviction of character in their service to their country. And in many ways this morning, what you have in 3 John is something very similar. You have brief, a brief glimpse into the lives of a handful of individuals that show us what life in service to the Savior is supposed to be about. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we saw in 2 John a message about what it means to live a life of love in accordance with the truth of God. And in this second letter now, of his smaller letters, the third letter total we have, 3 John, we now see what that in theory looks like in practice. In other words, in 2 John, he very much has kind of laid out for us this this relationship between truth and love uh, and a calling to that. And now we see by way of example what that looks like practically in the lives of God's people. However, unlike Kennedy's book, uh, not every one of the examples we have in this short letter is a good one. And yet it is in fact between the good and the bad in the contrast there that there is a heightening of the call of God on our lives to be a people of love uh, living in light of the truth of the gospel. So that's the background uh, in terms of the theme, but what is the background in terms of the intent? Why was this letter of 3 John written in the first place? Well, the apostle uh, John penned this letter in response to a division within a local church. One man was living contrary to the gospel that he professed to believe, taking power for himself and was wrongly influencing the church. John himself had even tried to write to the church about this situation and, and, and rebuke this individual, and yet he was ignored. So now John himself is preparing to come in person, and before he does, he writes to at least one godly man in the congregation, encouraging him based on his past actions to remain strong in the faith until John himself can arrive and sort things out. This young man, Gaius, has begun well in his life of love according to the truth, and John exhorts him to continue in it despite the situation around him. Let's read uh, 3 John and see what he says to him. The elder to beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your truth to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he, was do what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. 
I had much to write to you, but would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. This is the Word of God. Blessed be the Lord. This letter revolves around the description of four people, John, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And each of these people serve as an example to us. Three of them serve as an example of how we should live and one as an example of how not to live. And each one of them provides insight into the relationship between truth and love and the importance of both in the context of the Christian life. So four, four uh, biographies, four short cameos, four examples for us this morning. The first comes from the Apostle John himself. And here we see this, that we are to rejoice in growing Christians. We are to rejoice in growing Christians. Though John probably did not intend for himself to be an example in this letter, he nevertheless is by virtue of what he shares about himself. Specifically that he rejoices when he sees Christians growing. He says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now last week we, we talked about that phrase, walking in the truth, that we also saw in uh, 2 John, and we said it doesn't have anything to do with walking per se. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's like when someone says to you, you don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Now just as an aside, we need to say, frankly, that's not, that's not good advice. That's not the proverbial wisdom for which that is often quoted because it assumes there's no such thing as uh, absolute truth, but that truth is all relative. So until you have experienced someone's life, you cannot judge whether or not their actions are wrong. And frankly, the Bible says, no, that's not right. Uh, there is a God who stands above all humanity and He gives to us truth which cuts across every culture, every circumstance and says this is right and this is wrong. And so by knowing the Bible, uh, not just our own opinions, but by knowing God's Word, we are able to say that we have not lived their life and experienced their experiences, yes, that is right or no, that is wrong. All right, now that was a freebie and we won't charge you for that. But the point though is he's using a metaphor in the same way. To, to walk in someone's shoes means you're, you're living out the life. You're sharing the kind of experience that they've had. So the point here with the metaphor of walking is living. To walk in the truth means they are living in accordance with the truth they have received from God, especially in the gospel. And of course, John says that this is what brings him joy. That they know the truth, they really know who Christ is, that he knows that they know what uh, has happened in being brought to God in their life, and more than that, they understand the implications of that truth, and they are allowing it to, to affect their lives on a daily basis. Thus, knowing the truth is about more than just agreeing that the truth exists. It's more than just mental assent. It's more than just knowing the facts, like the facts about the Battle of Gettysburg or the Apollo 12 mission. It's about knowing in such a way that you embrace the truth, you depend on the truth, and you cherish the truth as your life is transformed. That's why we are saying all the time, remember the gospel and preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of the work that God has done for you in Christ, of what He has sought to do, and not just to, to declare you righteous, but to transform you into being righteous. 
He has looked at us in the filth of our sin and He has chosen to love us anyway through His Son. He has seen the rebellion of our lives, refusing to love God or acknowledge Him as God, and yet He has still chosen to redeem us. To do so, God has sent His own Son to identify with us, not only in, in, in our humanity, but also in our sin as He hung on the cross, bearing the full reproach of God, satisfying our debt of sin, that God might reconcile us to Himself. That is what God has done for us through His beloved Son. And that is why the message of Christ is called Good News, because God is merciful to sinners. And this is where maturity, this is where growth begins. And knowing that, and not just knowing it as fact, but knowing it as life experience. Being like Paul being able to say that, that Christ loved him and gave his life for me. For me. For me. He did this for me. John says this was true of Gaius' life. He knew the truth in such a way that it transformed his living, and so John was joyful. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? And it brings us to the po- really the point of this point, and that is this. What brings you joy in this life? What brings you not just happiness, but true, lasting joy? So that way when you are sick and diseased and r- crippled up in the bed, you still have a smile on your face. That's what we mean by joy. What brings you joy? Too often, it is things like job advancement, good health, our children, our friends, our popularity with people. Those are the kind of things that we would say brings us joy. And yet, here John sets the example for us and he says if that's true, our joy is far too shallow. It's far too shallow because he says in verse 2 that while he is concerned for Gaius' health, he is far more concerned with his soul. In fact, it is the health of his soul which determines the health of his body and the degree to which John is concerned for it. What he means is this by implication. Uh, Gaius, again, uh, could be uh, uh, horribly sick, and yet if his soul is growing, John has joy. Conversely, Gaius could be in great health, but his soul could be sickened. He could be falling away from the faith, and John would not have joy. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's a conviction, to me at least. Yes, I do take joy in in knowing that you and other Christians that I have are walking in the truth, but I'm not sure I could say that that is my greatest joy. But that's what John says, and that's the example that he sets for us, that we would so love the truth, we would so know the truth in our own lives, that when we see the truth growing God's people around us, that we would take joy in that as much as we would take joy in our own growth and maturity. This is the example John sets for us, that we would take joy in growing Christians. And one who was growing and so brought joy was Gaius, And, of course, Gaius then becomes the next example that we see in terms of this intersection between truth and love. And here is the lesson we learn from Gaius, that we ought to support gospel workers. We ought to support gospel workers. John says to him, Beloved, as a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. Now, do you remember in 2 John when the apostle warned about letting false teachers, false missionaries, false in the sense that they did not 
believe the gospel. They did not believe right things about Jesus Christ. He said, don't invite them in to your church. Don't support them. Don't even pronounce a blessing on them. Close the door and send them on their way. Have nothing to do with that. Well, this passage is the, con the converse of that warning. It's an encouragement that when you find real missionaries, real Christian workers, real individuals who know the gospel, who love it, who affirm the truth of Christ, then support them, encourage them, bring them into your house and pronounce a blessing on them. And what he says is, Gaius has already done just that. He didn't know these individuals. Nevertheless, he welcomed them in. He encouraged them. He showed them love and compassion and support. In fact, apparently he did it in such a, a Christian way, in such a Christ-like way, in such an extraordinary way, that when these individuals get back to their home church, uh, where John is, they testify to all the church of Gaius' love for them. And, and that's really the point. It was an act of love based on the truth of Christ that led Gaius to support these missionaries. In fact, notice what John says to Gaius. He says, you did well. You love these brothers. Don't stop. Don't stop having that kind of attitude. Don't stop showing that kind of love and support. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey. In fact, listen to this shocking statement. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, first of all, send them on their journey doesn't mean direct their mission. It simply means send them along with the necessary material supplies and encouragement they need to complete their mission. But notice, again, what to me is a shocking standard of the support we ought to give. Send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. If God showed up to your house, how would you encourage Him? How would you treat Him? Now, understand what John is saying. He's not saying when, when they show up, you bow down and you worship them and you pray to them and you embrace them and say, oh, I love you. you know, well, maybe you can hug them and say you love them. But, but his, his point is not to say that you adore them in the same way you adore God. Rather, what it means is there is a certain standard for support that is reflected in our love for God, a love that would be deep, sincere, sacrificial, and joyful. That's the, that's the standard for how we treat those that go out for the sake of the name. Now, frankly, that stands in stark contrast to some of the ways in which I've heard missionaries have been loved and encouraged in various contexts. I heard of one church where people typically would gather up their own clothes bound for goodwill and decide to give them to the missionaries instead. Now, I'm sure the missionaries were grateful to have something new, but frankly, it wasn't new. It was their old stuff. Why would they want your old stuff? Right? Why not get them new stuff? In fact, when I was in college, I heard one man say that whenever the missionaries would come to his church, he would pull out his credit cards and he would have quite a bit of fun. Uh, his wife would take the, the missionary's wife and they would go to the store and they would buy new dresses and they would buy all the things they couldn't get on the mission field, uh, not even necessities, but some pampering things to show love and encourage and support. And he says rather than just buy a suit off the rack, he would actually go in and have one tailor-made for the husband. Uh, they would literally seek to give them the best they possibly could. And I remember someone questioning that and saying, well, you know, would God really want you to go into debt to show that kind of uh, lavishness towards these individuals? What about paying all that interest? The man's response was this, it's worth it. It's worth it. If, if Christ were to show up at my house, I think I would take out a second mortgage. I think I would sell a vehicle. I would do everything I possibly could to lavish love and affection on that man. 
And John says, do the same with missionaries. Not those that would just claim to be for the truth, who would claim to love, but those who know Christ. Those who know Christ to such a degree that they have given up their life in order to go out for the sake of the name. That word name in verse 7 should be capitalized in your English Bible because for the early Christians to speak of the name was synonymous with speaking of Christ. These brothers gave up their lives, their families, and even their livelihoods, their jobs, to go out among the Gentiles and tell them of the salvation they could have in Christ. What made that difficult? Simply this, they didn't ask the Gentiles for money. I mean, you can imagine the situation. Someone knocks on your door and says, we want to tell you about eternal life and about the one true God and about how you're worshiping false gods. They're, they're simply idols and they're providing no benefit to you, but we can show you real salvation, a real knowledge of the one true God, but we have no place to stay. Can we stay with you and raid your fridge? Boom! Slam the door in their face, right? And no thanks, I don't need that. And so they go out determined we're not going to accept anything from the Gentiles. Well, that's good, but then who's going to support them? How are they going to live? How are they going to eat? How are they going to have that extra cloak on cold nights? Well, it's the brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to support them, who are going to provide for them, who are going to send them along their way. And in fact, John says, when we support such people, people giving up much to tell others of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, then we become fellow workers for the truth, verse 8. Now let me make two observations about this. First of all, Gaius himself knew the truth and he knew the gospel and the broader truth of Christian theology. And notice the response of his life in knowing that truth. It was love. It was love. Not just a kind of pat on the back, pat on the back and, and move on kind of love. It was a deep love that was shown in very practical, sacrificial ways. Truth and love are not op opposites, as we will see in just a minute, in fact. It's only when you really know the truth and understand the truth and embrace the truth of Christ that you'll really be able to love. And if you say, I know the truth of Christ, I embrace the truth of Christ, and yet you do not love, John says, there's a problem on the, on the first thing then. You don't really know the truth. You don't really embrace it. You are not understanding it the way that you think you do. In fact, John says that the world will only be able to come to see the kind of love that they cannot understand if you've been transformed by the truth. Secondly, notice this love and support wasn't based on Gaius knowing these individuals. It wasn't like these were his high school buddies. It, these weren't the guys that he went to college with. They weren't the guys that were from his own church who came back from the mission field. He didn't know these people and yet he supported them. What did that mean? It means he didn't have to agree with their style of clothing their choice in music or parenting or pizza toppings. He only knew the essentials. These men love our Savior. They love our Savior and they are committed in word and deed to telling others about them. Therefore, Gaius was committed in word and deed to supporting them. They went out for the sake of the name. Therefore, they were worthy of his hospitality and love. Now, in contrast to that kind of truth-based loving actions of Gaius, we find our third example, Diotrephes. And here's what we learn from Diotrephes, that we ought to serve with a gracious character. We ought to serve with a gracious character. Here, however, we learn that by contrast, not by imitation, for Diotrephes is our negative example. 
What we see in him is not gracious character. He doesn't model that. Rather, it's the opposite that we see in him, and John condemns him for it. Look at verse 9. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Now let's just stop right there. Problem number one, a living apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant of Christ, unique in all history, commissioned to build the church with the authority of Christ himself, sends you a letter and you ignore it? I mean, who in the world do you think you are, Diotrephes? I mean, that's hubris. That's, that's chutzpah. You know what chutzpah is? It's killing your parents and throwing yourself on the mercy of the court because you're an orphan. That, that's called chutzpah, okay? And, and, and that's, what, that's what Diotrephes is. That's what he has. I mean, who does he think he is to ignore the Apostle John? Well, John tells us, doesn't he? He tells us he ignores the Apostle because he likes to put himself first. So unlike Gaius, whose life is full of love and truth, whose heart and actions reflect the life of Christ himself, here is Diotrephes who denies the gospel with his life. I mean, what could be more antithetical to the gospel than this kind of arrogance? Of an attitude which says, I always think of myself and what I want first. Now, I know we've heard these verses before. That is the ones I'm about to quote in a minute. And maybe we've heard them so much that they've lost some of their power. But I want you to try and listen with fresh ears and follow the logic of, of Paul's powerful argument in Philippians 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the if here uh, is, 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 uh, is constructed in such a way that both Paul knows and his readers knows it's true. So there's a real sense in which we could translate it since... Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love and there is participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." We only have salvation because Jesus was not like Diotrephes. He did not think of himself first. Because Jesus did not think of himself first, but rather obeyed the Father's will and divested himself of glory, taking on flesh, serving sinful humanity, experienced physical and mental anguish as he offered up his life for the salvation of people, how much more, Paul says, should we humble ourselves and serve one another? So his argument runs like this. If it's good enough for the Son of God, it's good enough for you. That's, that's how his argument runs. Specifically, serving others by thinking of them first and considering their own needs even before our own. Now, if we understand the gospel, if we really understand what Paul has just recounted, then, then that's how we're going to live. So here's the reality check. If that's not our attitude, then we fail to understand the gospel. We have failed to grasp the enormity and the unbelievable reality that God the Son 
took on flesh and died for sinners. That the risen Christ we acknowledge as Lord was at one time naked and broken and bloody, hanging to a cross by nothing other than a couple of spikes driven through his hands and his feet. And he did that in our place. When you read the descriptions of the crucifixion, if you decide to go watch the Passion, you look at that and you say, that should have been me. That's what I deserve for my rebellion and for my sin. And yet Christ humbled himself and thought of us before himself and bore our sins for us. When the weight of that truth that gospel reality fills our minds and our hearts. What will be produced is a loving, humble, supportive, sacrificial love for other people. And so what can we do but consider the cross again and again and again? This wasn't Diotrephes' life. He thought of himself before all others. Therefore, John says, not being even content to refuse the apostles' authority, he also refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, uh, and, and stops those who want to, and even puts them out of the church. Now, to be honest, I understand the first part. I can understand the mindset of someone who would say, "This is my church and my money. I don't want to waste it on people I don't know." But I just don't get the second part. Why would he refuse other to allow others to help? And when they want to help, he kicks them out of the church. Why would he do that? I can only imagine it goes back to his love of himself and the desire to be first in everything. He doesn't want to focus on something or someone other than himself. Whatever the reason, he did not live in accordance with the truth and his lack of love for those going out for the name make that evident. Now, don't forget this contrast, please. Don't forget these two examples we've seen, one bad and one good, between Diotrephes and Gaius, one who refuses support of missionaries and the other who does, because this summer, missionaries that we support through the cooperative program will be here. And not only missionaries that we have supported with the cooperative program, but ones that we ourselves have partnered with on the field, they, were, they will be here, uh, and they think they're coming to encourage us. They think they're coming here to tell us about uh, the things that God is doing with the money that we give and through the prayers that we offer, that we might be encouraged and excited about missions. And yes, that will happen, but that's not why we've invited them to come. I mean, frankly, we can read that in the letter, that we love them and long to see them face to face. We can get all that through the letter. We've invited them to come so that we can encourage them, so that we can pour out love and support and encouragement and show them hospitality and send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So when they come, don't forget, you will be tempted, though, to act not like Gaius, but like Diotrephes. The temptation will come. They're just visitors. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll show them around, but we've got, we've got ministry to get on with here. I mean, we just can't get consumed with just grinding things down and just listening to them and praying for them and loving them and supporting them. There's bigger things to be doing. Or perhaps if you don't couch your sin in such uh, pseudo-godliness, you'll just be thinking about your own bills, be thinking about ball games and children's school activities and other things that would seem to require our attention. And we will be tempted to come and to listen and do no more. But like the Apostle John, I want to encourage you that you would do well to imitate Gaius. That you would do well to count their needs as more important than your own. Let me encourage you to encourage them 
to sacrifice for them, to love them as you would Christ himself. And not just them, but all who would know the truth, who would understand the true nature of the gospel and would be going out for the sake of Christ's name to serve the nations, to show them that kind of love as well. And in doing so, you will display before the world and before the church a good witness. And this brings us to our final example that we see from our text, the example of Demetrius. And here we're encouraged to display before the world a good witness. Display a good witness. Before we look directly to the example of Demetrius, I want us to pause and just consider the situation in this church a little more intently. Out of sinful desires, Diotrephes is seeking control of the church. He's not supporting gospel workers. He's not even allowing others to do that. He's drawing power for himself, even rejecting a letter from John. And we, we've said that all before. Yet in the midst of that, here is this man Gaius who does support gospel workers. Now, I, I'm not sure if he's doing this despite Diotrephes or if he's done this before Diotrephes' powered trip. But when John is writing, Gaius is under pressure to follow Diotrephes' lead. And remember that John here says nothing about Diotrephes' doctrine. Did you notice that when you read? He never says he's a false teacher. He never says directly the gospel he preaches is wrong. In fact, I, I believe firmly that when Diotrephes got up and teach, he was probably one of the best. He knew the gospel inside and out. He knew the scriptures. He could teach them. The problem was he didn't really believe them. His life gave no evidence that he actually believed the truth he was professing to believe. His doctrine was sound. It was his life that was wrong. It was inconsistent with the message he professed to have faith in. And the temptation for Gaius is as he's hearing not a false gospel, but a true gospel off Diotrephes' lips. Surely he has authority in the church and therefore the temptation for Gaius was to follow his example, to be sucked into this unloving, hard-shelled, self-centered attitude and forget the kind of love and support that he had showed for the past to those working for the gospel. Now John has already encouraged Gaius, hey, remember what you once did. Uh, the missionaries went away so refreshed, so encouraged, they couldn't stop telling people about your love for them. Continue to do that. But now, more specifically, he zeroes in on the negative example he's tempted to follow and he says, don't imitate Diotrephes or anyone like him. He's just talked about this wicked man. In verse 11, what does he say? Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And here John highlights the importance of how we live our lives as God's people. If we persist in evil, sinful behavior, John says it gives evidence that we haven't really seen God. We haven't seen the truth of who He is in Christ and potentially our faith isn't real. So John says, don't follow that kind of person. Don't follow one who gives that kind of example. Instead, seek out imitating those who do good. And so in contrast to Diotrephes, John says, consider Demetrius. Verse 12, he has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So who was this guy, Demetrius? Well, we don't know for sure. He could have been someone who was in the church already who was defying 
Diotrephes, or some scholars believe he was actually the one who bore the letter to Gaius. He came from John to Gaius and was on his way to go into the midst of that church and preemptively confront Diotrephes, preparing the way for the apostle himself to come. Either way, frankly, it doesn't matter. The point is this. John says, here is a man whose example you should follow. Don't follow after Demetrius, or rather after Diotrephes. Instead, follow Demetrius because he has a good witness. He has a good testimony. And notice three things about this testimony. Number one, the community knows his witness and he has a good reputation among them. He received a good testimony from everyone. That is, all of the Christians around that know him think highly of him. But secondly, uh, John ratchets it up a little bit. He says the apostles know his reputation and approve. We also add our testimony, and you know our testimony is true. Hey, if you get an endorsement from the apostles, that's got to say something for the character of your life, right? But then notice John finally says this, Demetrius has received a good testimony from the truth itself. And this is the most important part of his witness. That is this, the gospel itself pays tribute to him. In other words, his life measures up. Demetrius is to be imitated because in public and in private, from one city to another, in the midst of important people like the apostles and comparative nobodies like average Christians, Demetrius is always the same. He is a man whose life is lived in light of the gospel. Several years ago, Dr. David Wells was interviewed about his life and ministry. Wells is a great theologian from uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's written some very important books. And Wells shared that in part he was brought to Christ by the ministry of another uh, famous man, another famous minister named John Stott. And in that interview, Wells said that for a while he even lived with Stott while he was in London. And you have to understand, some of you may know the name John Stott. Uh, he's a giant in some evangelical circles. He has uh, not only pastored a very large and uh, blessed church in London, blessed, I think, through the faithfulness of his preaching word, but he has been an evangelist and a speaker among uh, college campuses in Europe. Uh, seeking to bring the gospel to the universities there. He's been involved in the, in the Lausanne Missions Conference uh, in very important ways in terms of its leadership. And among all the books that he's written, uh, one of them is perhaps the best book still today, 25 years on, about the nature of the cross of Christ and its implications for the Christian life. He's no small man. And Wells knew him. He even lived with him. And he says about Stott, what everyone, everyone wants to hear about those they look up to. He said, Stott is in public what he is in private. He's the same man. He's the same man. What greater testimony to Christian character could, could there be? That you don't go out amongst God's people, putting on a show, living one way, professing one thing, and yet in private or among a different group of people, your life is different. There are those that come on Sunday who look very different on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday night. Maybe they look a little special, maybe, but then Thursday and Friday and Saturday, whether it's with other friends or in their home, um, they are not the same. And yet that wasn't Demetrius, and that wasn't the example that he said, and that's not the example that John says to follow. He says, here is a man who loves the truth, who has been gripped by the truth, and his life, his life is lived accordingly. What flows from his life is a good witness, a good testimony to who Christ is. And he says, Gaius, you need to find people like that. 
and you need to be around them and you need to seek to imitate them. Now, that while that is a word to all of us young people, I want to especially talk to you this morning because it says something to the value of the friendships that we have. Who are you around? Are you around those who would do evil in the sight of God or are you around those who would do good and have a good witness in the sight of God? Whether we want to believe it or not, whether we want to let it happen or not, who we are around will affect our lives. It just happens. And nine times out of ten, unfortunately, it's the sin that wins out in the imitation factor. If I'm around a group of friends who are crass and crude, then I will become crass and crude in my walk with God and in my testimony before others. doesn't mean that you can't ever be friends with a lost person. doesn't mean you can't ever uh, seek to be engaged in someone's life for the sake of the gospel. What it does mean is this. Uh, they are not to be considered your closest friends. They are not to be those that you seek to pattern your life over. Rather, seek out those like Demetrius, whether of your own age or older. Hopefully, your parents or peop other people in uh, your circle of friendship, even in this church, will be ones that you would want to spend time with and seek to pattern your life on. For they are ones whose lives are lived by the truth and they have a good testimony before all. Now, I don't want us to go away from this message thinking, here's four things that I've got to do this week. Here's four things I've got to do this week. Frankly, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because Christianity is not a religion of works. Even in pursuing holiness, even in our sanctification, it is not by works that we grow. It is by faith. And so what I want you to see are four areas perhaps of prayer concern for your life where you say, God, I observe from 3 John these four things I need to be strengthened in. How are you going to go about being strengthened in them? Well, perhaps there are practical things you can do, but all the while you're going to be reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel. Isn't that what we've even seen in the very letter itself? That the way we show love, the way we are humble and supportive of others is by having a life lived and affected by the truth of Christ. And therefore, what we are to do is to bombard our minds both through avenues like this, through the private reading of the Word, through godly conversation, to be reminded over and over again, to pray, God, remind me over and over again, to put before my mind's eye Christ crucified and risen for me. And it's that truth, it's that truth changing the patterns of our minds and our thoughts that will also change the conviction and the joys of our hearts. And it may not be next week, it may not be next year, but if we continue on that path of preaching the gospel to ourselves and believing it, then in the days and weeks and months and maybe years to come, we will read through John and we will be able to say, that's me. By God's grace, that's me. May God be wise and quick in doing that. Father, we are thankful for your truth. We are thankful for your word. God, we are never left to wonder what you think about an issue, how you would have our lives be directed and lived out. But Father, we are often so slow to believe, so slow to act, so quick to enjoy our sin. Father, we pray that because of what Christ has done, that we would be shaken from our spiritual lethargy, that God, we would be challenged to to be renewed and refreshed in our love for your Son, our Savior. And that God, in doing so, 
our faith would be deepened, and our lives would be changed. God, this is our prayer, even as collectively as a church, we see the great need that stands before us in a dying world, a great need to not only support, but perhaps even ourselves to be, to be sent out into a world that needs to hear Christ, especially here, God, but even more so in those places where there is no church, there is no gospel, there is no witness for the name. Father, we pray that as you build us up, that you would use us to advance your kingdom work around the world. For the sake of Christ, we pray this. Amen.